Before we get to today's podcast, I just wanted to remind everybody we are having our official launch party um, for the rest of August. Go to stealthyhunter.com slash giveaway and you can get entered to be in a September's Here giveaway. We're going to pick a winner September 1st. So all you have to do is uh, for every dollar you spend, you get one entry. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible for one lucky winner to basically get ready for the hunting season and possibly join us next summer at the Western Hunting Summit 2023. Again, go to stealthyhunter.com slash giveaway. Also, use the code STAHEALTHY at checkout to get 10% off. All right, let's do this. Today, I have a very special guest. He's somebody probably none of you know, uh, and uh, I've met him actually through work and for the last couple of years, and <clears throat> we've been working together and just through our visits talking about all the things that you do in your life and being a chef. And because here at the podcast, we talk a lot, we have in the past talked a lot about food, growing food, sustainable living. Um, healthy living in general. I mean, food is a big piece of our platform. So I want you, Scott, to kind of introduce yourself, um, give us a little bit of background on who you are, and um, we'll just kind of we'll just kind of roll with it. But we have a lot of interesting topics to talk about today. So, Scott. Sure. sure. Yeah. So I'll just say first that we have often joked that, you know, our worlds intersect with food in your nutrition background, and then my chef and culinary background, but they definitely part ways at some point when I'm feeding people things that are not always the healthiest for them, like right. the butter, like the sugar and the things, but they taste so darn good. Right. So that's where we sort of don't always come together, and it's been fun conversation. So me, so I have been in the culinary world my whole life. So I started, as many of us do, certainly back in, in my era, was being a dishwasher as a kid in high school. And it was a job, because you wanted a job to have money to hang out with your friends. And I had these visions of going to art school post high school. But the funny catch-22 was that I didn't really have the grades and the study discipline to get into a school like that because I was really more interested in working than homework and studying. And as it turned out, I really liked this restaurant world as a kid. And I moved up through the ranks through high school and then post high school got a really cool job in a then 1987, very cool, hip cafe in a touristy river town close to where I grew up in Minnesota. And, you know, the short story from there is the rest is history. But I just kept getting better and better jobs. And I ended up getting a job in a French restaurant, traditional French restaurant in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I was born. And I worked there on and off for 11 years. And I learned a lot of the basics and a lot of the foundation. The first few years was 
uh, Chef Michel, who was in his late 60s then and ready to retire, and he ran circles all around all of us young kids. And he was the traditional old school French chef that, you know, he wanted you to know things for the right reason, and he wanted to know he wasn't wasting his time with you. So, you know, you'd, you'd ask him when you, when you worked up the courage to approach him and say, Chef, why is it you do that? He'd, he would not even look at you. He'd just smirk looking down, continuing his task, and he'd say, oh, you don't know? And you'd just pause, and you'd walk away, and one of the more veteran cooks in the kitchen would say, he doesn't believe that you're really interested. Ask him again in a few days or ask him the next time he wants to know. So that's how they taught you back then. And he was so intimidating that every minute of working there the first couple years, I was just afraid I was going to be fired at any moment. And fast forward to him retiring and his number two taking over for years, um, we grew to have quite a, quite a team and quite a, quite a family there. So um, I had an opportunity to take a position with a chef by the name of Tim McKee in St. Paul, uh, technically Minneapolis, who opened La Belle Vie, which was a very, very uh, wonderful French Mediterranean restaurant he opened. And I was there for a short time and then had an opportunity to take a position in a kitchen at Aquavit Minneapolis, which was the second iteration of Aquavit New York uh, by Marcus Samuelson, a Ethiopian-born Swedish chef who is now you've seen him all over the Food Network and all over TV. And he was even gaining national notoriety then. And oddly enough, we were the same age at the time, 27. And to watch what he had done made you feel a little small sometimes when you're a cook in a kitchen for a guy like that who's your age and he's, he's, he's gaining world status and his success and his talent and his drive and his visions. Uh, but that was really a catapult for doing more. Um, and then I moved to Montana in 2000 to Big Sky specifically to, to just a change of life. I was changing, making changes in my personal life and felt like I needed to grow and do some things. I didn't know exactly what my next step was in the culinary side, just that I wanted to move in, you know, move up the ranks. Uh, so I was able to uh, find a position as the opening chef in the Moonlight Lodge in Big Sky in 2000 in a restaurant called The Timbers in Moonlight Lodge, uh, named for its massive log work. When you walk into the, the lodge, it's, you know, 38, 40-foot ceiling in the atrium and these massive Douglas firs. And so anyway, that's where the name came from. Um, and I worked there for eight years and opened that restaurant as the chef of two brothers from Jackson Hole. And uh, it was my first exec chef position. And uh, it, was, it was everything you might think it would be for a young chef, stereotypically. It was fun. It was exciting. It was stressful, it was heartbreaking, it was challenging, all those things at the same time. But we really built a name for ourselves in the community. And then I had the opportunity to move from there and become the number two, the executive sous chef at the Yellowstone Club in 2008. And that's where, that was really a catapult for exposure to 
food, people, travel. We would travel to other clubs and, and, and sort of help out some of their larger events. And we had, of course, a lot of celebrities that were there that we were never allowed to discuss, but we all talked about them anyway. Um, and that was a great experience. So from there, I moved to, felt like I needed to move away, get out of Montana and just make a change. So I moved to Austin, Texas. And had a few interesting jobs there. It just wasn't something that I really liked in the end. I liked Texas, but I didn't like the scene there. I found in my career as a whole, I have found this community, the hospitality industry, specifically restaurants, to be very, uh, very warm and community and team oriented in terms of those of us in other or competing restaurants. So it was just something that I wasn't finding there quite so much. And I didn't, I didn't like the scene. It was an incredible scene from a culinary perspective and distilleries and breweries and whatnot. It was, it was, it was, it's an incredible city from that. But I didn't like the vibe. And so I had an opportunity to come back to Big Sky with an old friend and peer uh, to take the chef position at Bucks T4 in Big Sky. And I was there for seven years. And the vision was to probably slowly take over that, not from an ownership standpoint, but to just run it as the ownership sort of physically retired from the business. But a couple years ago, they were made an offer they couldn't refuse to sell it. And so they did, and, and good for them. We were happy for them. And um, I was looking for other things. So I've, I've done a few things since. Um, and where I go from here, I'm not really sure. We talk about balance, right? And the yeah. obsessed, passionate, skilled yeah, people store. You know, in this world, whether they're an NFL quarterback or a chef or an architect or whoever they may be, that it's not about balance. Right. They have a, they have a single obsession. And it's funny we talk about this because chefs are notorious for being both obsessed and obsessive compulsive people. Um, they're habit driven, um, good, bad, and otherwise, usually bad. Um, I joke that I've somehow, 35, 37 years in this industry, I have, I have avoided the typical pitfalls. I've stayed relatively healthy. I've stayed relatively fit um, in terms of drug addiction and sleep deprivation and poor diet and all of the things that afflict us as chef generally, I've been able to avoid. So I'm fortunate there, I think. Some of that is conscious focus, of course, and some of it's just, I think there's some, there's some there's some genetic and chemical makeup in some of us that are just not prone to some of those things. So you said you this the chef that you idolized, this Ethiopian man or whatever. Yep, Marcus. Marcus, like, was he? Did he go to school? Did he go to culinary school? Like, what percentage of chefs who are out there that are really yeah. well known and stuff actually go to school and have that education or are they again like you just said there's this they're wired and they have this like creativity and 
Sure. So less and less is the short answer as the years move on and the decades move on. Marcus specifically, um, he was adopted at three uh, years old into a, a mother and father uh, doctors from Sweden, from Stockholm. And so he was raised in Sweden with his, with his younger sister. And so there in their programs, you, you know, everybody at some point does a little bit of military service, which is very common there in Scandinavia. And also you start to learn a trade earlier in school, in high school years. So he, he had great memories of his Swedish grandmother just in the kitchen watching her. It's just so many of us have, have, we skip the parents. We seem to have a lot of memories of grandparents and grandmothers um, in kitchens. Parents were working. <laughs> parents were working, right. Um, but he, so he learned that trade and that skill and that passion, you know, in his, in his earlier schooling years. But less and less chefs, you're finding chefs out there um, that went to culinary school. They're out there. Schools are still there, but, you know, a few have closed over the years. Um, less and less chefs at the high levels even went to culinary school. You learn the science behind it, and it's very important, but you don't learn the practicality. Even in the finest schools like CIA, Culinary Institute of America, in Napa and in Hyde Park, New York, and the Cordon Bleu and some of these other ones, you don't learn much practical. Now, there is the two CIAs have a restaurant, a working functioning restaurant, which is important. But short of that, students in schools, in many of the culinary schools, don't learn practical. And by practical, I mean, what's your working knowledge of a restaurant? You know, sun up to sundown, how does it work? Kids want to be a chef. And they come out and, they, and they've learned an incredible skill. They've learned a lot about science and structure of food. And they expect that they are going to come out and skip over all of these people that have been grinding it out in the trenches, as I say. And they come in and they do have food knowledge, but they have very little or no practical working skills of what's referred to in a kitchen as the line, right, where the cooks are cooking. If you can't, if you can't do that, you'll, you will not survive as a chef. You just simply won't. Um, and so you've, you've got to have practical knowledge of a working kitchen, and you don't really get that in a school. You do learn science, ratios, and, and that side of things, which is important. And you know, I've heard, had to learn some of that the hard way. Right, so I give you an example. There's a ratio for sugar to water to fruit puree to make a sorbet successful. The right texture. It's not drippy. It's not. It's not gooey, but it's not all ice icicles and ice structure that just crumbles away in flakes. There's a balance in there. I don't know scientifically or measurement-wise what that balance is. But I do know that I can take those three ingredients and I can mix them up and put them in a container. And I can take, an, I can take a raw egg in its shell and drop it in that mix. And when, the, and when the white shell part, when the egg floats to the size of between a quarter and a 50 cent piece, that's the right ratio. So I learned that way. Yeah. But what that mixture is, I don't know. I've never measured it. Art and science and ratios really comes into play bread, right? So there's a ratio, there's yeast to, you know, you've got your leavening agent to some sugar in there to start the, you know, to, to, to jumpstart the yeast to then start to consume the sugars and the breads and the starches and all of that, or the, 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 the flour and the wheat. But from there, 
a really good baker starts to create little, they start to tweak and create little recipes, right? And then bread specifically, now you can get into certain ovens. Not only temperature, but moisture in ovens, right? So I was in Montpellier in the south of France visiting a friend years ago. And he says, we got to go see this guy for bread. He won an award. He's the second best bread baker in the world. So we're in the old part of Montpellier that's about 600 years old. It's got an old Roman wall around, you know, about 10 feet tall around the inner part of the city. And we're in there, cobblestone, just how you drew it up in a, in a movie, right? And we're walking. We come around this corner. And there's this little plaque, little doorway, very nondescript, sign on one side of the door on the wall, another plaque with his, like, award in French with a French flag on it and second best, second place baker in the world. And you go in this place and it's maybe no bigger than this coffee shop we're sitting in here, uh, not including the back of the house. And there's this old cast iron oven sort of packed in the wall with some loose and mortared bricks around it. And this oven apparently is like 350 years old, right? So you can't just take his recipes, move to a shop somewhere else in France or here and expect the same results, right? So that's where, that's where baking can really get fun. Same with barbecue. Barbecue is very similar, right? Texas brisket and, you know, the, 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 the brisket belt between Austin and Houston, Texas, right? Like it's, it's, you can't just take their recipe and get a different size, different shaped smoker and expect the same results. Uh, the other thing that I noticed with food like today compared to maybe grandma's day was that uh, things were slower and people expected more time out of things. So like even you talked about bread, like making sourdough, you know, you can't just make sourdough like a yeasted bread in one day. Even yeasted bread, you have to let it sit Correct. and you have to let it, but sourdough, you have to like make a sourdough starter. Then you have to let it get good enough to make mm -hmm. bread and then you've got to let that and there's so much time even like making cheese and like you said making sauerkraut right. making that cap just even soaking the thing overnight we're in such a hurry now that we look at all of these steps that our ancestors were taking and we just like i feel like people are in such a hurry i even feel like that too i'm like i want a loaf of bread right now right and it's like you, you got to be prepared. So there was something about food, and I, I've noticed this. Um, have you been to the Tinsley House at the um, Museum of the Rockies? I have not. Okay. So it's that homesteader yeah. house that they yeah. moved from somewhere out in the valley here, and they put it at the Museum of the Rockies. And they have actors in there that are dressed like it's early 1900s, um, and it's the exact house. And they churn butter. So they have women in there churning butter, and they make cookies in the wood-fired oven that's in there. Sure. They have an ice box that has, like, a piece of ice in it. And you just think about what it took in an average day for a woman to make a me three meals a day for her family. And you were literally, like, in the kitchen all day long. That's because all they did. you churned butter, you made sourdough, you fermented foods, you canned you preserved. Um, Let's even go back before you churn the butter. They milked the cow milk the or cow. the goat in some cases if they're using you right. right. But they first they did that right. Their day was full, sun up to sundown. Yeah, and like it, it's it's and people walk through that house 
And you just, when you're in there, you realize the convenience of the food that we've created now has taken an element, an emotional element, around what it means to create good food um, in this day and age. So right. like, um, yeah, I, I always think about that. So if you ever go there, you'll see it. It's like, you see how someone in the early 1900s was living and what it took to make food. Yeah. And even just doing these events, you know, for 80 people a weekend, three meals a day. I mean, we were literally like up at 5.30 getting breakfast together. Breakfast would be done. We would be preparing for lunch and dinner. And this was like every single day, day in, you know, in and out. And But we have sped up so fast that we forget. Like when grandma made coleslaw, she wasn't in a hurry. Right. It was like you soak the cabbage overnight and et cetera. So, and you planned it because it was planned. I'm going to right. make this tomorrow, so I need to start this today. Right. Again, planning. Right. 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 Camping a month ago, we did 75% of our meals, my family and I, on the fire outside. We mm -hmm. took the time. Right. We made like pasta rigatoni in a cast iron on the fire. So first I had to light the fire and then get it, get it nice and hot so then I could just let the flame dissipate and spread the coals. Right? This takes time, right? right? But you're camping. What, do you, what else are you there to do? Well, here's the other thing. You know, you're talking right now to a lot of hunters, okay? Right. Because that's a big right. part of our community no, here. Hunters have very busy days. And hunters, like, understand the process of what it takes to get meat. So... You know, you've got to, it, there's all different types of hunting, but like my husband does Western hunting. So he is packing his bag. He's figuring out what he's got. He's prepping for weeks. He goes out in the mountains. He finds an animal. He tracks it. He kills it if he's lucky. Then he's got to cut it up, bone it out, do all this stuff, carry it back to camp, make sure the bears don't get it, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and maybe at camp he'll cut up a little meat and fry it in a little oil in his thing and over the fire or whatever. And like, that's like the best tasting meat, but that might've taken you seven days to get. And then all the prep that goes into making sure that meat is good to stay in the fridge and like all that preparation. And again, another step that our society right. is slowly losing because if you figure it, I think it's like 10% of the U S population hunts. And I think it's probably even less than that where they are hunting and they're procuring their own meat, unless you're talking about ranchers or farmers and they're, you know, doing animal right. husbandry. But that's even becoming more popular now because people are starting to see how disconnected we are. And so they're, they're getting animals, they're getting a pig, they're getting a cow. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. learning the responsibility of having an animal and then having to take its life and then eating it and kind of that cycle that goes on. Sure. And um, I didn't, uh, do you hunt? Have you hunted? Uh, I went with my father as a child. I don't hunt as an adult for no particular reason other than I just haven't taken it up. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I'm fully into it. I just, I don't do it. My, my, you know, my father hunted, he, he, growing up in Minnesota. So he would go deer hunting a little bit. He was a huge waterfowl hunter and we fished, you know, incessantly as children. But as I just gotten older in different directions in life, I, I don't hunt. Yeah. Well, I mean, but being in chef, so like, you know, you're intimately connected with oh. picking meat and understanding that yeah. and all that kind and of thing. And I have, I have, I think given what I do and my personal interests, I have a very acute appreciation 
and respect for those who hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intimately aware of, you know, the, 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 the beauties and the difficulties and the challenges that, you know, it's not easy. That's partly why that meat tastes so good. It's yeah. the work involved, right? Yeah. They earned it. Yeah, well, we always say, just like anything, like the story of grandma with her cat, with her coleslaw, it's the same thing with hunting. It's like when you eat that meat, there's a story behind it. There's something there that's not just like going and buying chicken at the grocery store. You don't have any connection to that, to that meat. Um, Quite, quite. And so you're actually, and sometimes purposely, unfortunately, you're disconnected. You're specifically disconnected from how many people know where any food on their plate came from at dinner tonight? None. Yeah, none. Very little. Yeah. 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 Even your salad that was grown somewhere in right. California. Yeah, or Salinas Valley or Yuma, Arizona. Yeah. Right. Depending you don't on the season. Have any connection to that? You didn't pick nope. it. Nope. Yeah, for sure. So okay, so I think we have a ton of topics that we could talk about, and your background is really interesting, and I think as you've said here, being a chef is kind of a noble career choice. I would say it's very cutthroat and probably very hard. It's and very like cutthroat. You said, you're dealing with a lot of difficult people um, and personalities all the time. And then, of course, you're dealing with creating food for people, right. which is a very emotional thing. People, when they go out to eat and they're paying for food, they have an expectation. Absolutely. Right? Well, food's the universal language. Right. It really is. Yeah. I think food and music. Yeah. So like you can Fair hear enough, music, music anywhere in the world. People understand music no matter what it is. Like we feel music and I think food is the same thing. Sure. So, so I'll make a case for food yeah. that you're doing something. It's more of an activity together, potentially, right. potentially. Right. And so this comes into the topics of, okay, we've talked a lot about this in visits with you is like, okay, I'm a chef. And I'm preparing food that needs to taste good for people. And sometimes that means it's not the healthiest food, right? The things that we're adding. Right. And that can be that can be difficult because we I think too, when we go out, people don't really know what's in the food. You know, they're expecting a good meal, they look at the menu, they see what's on there, unless they're super picky in particular and they got all these allergies and stuff and they're like, does it have this or this? Most people have no clue about what goes into making that dish, right? right. And Correct. what the flavors are and how you get those flavors. Sure. sure. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to just talk a little bit on a few topics, but I think one that we kind of really um, everybody understands is, is sugar. Number one, yes, and fat, yes, right. And why are sugar and fat so good? Like, what do they do to the body? Well, can I tell you something about all th- the th- three things? But yeah, fat and sugar. So there's something we refer to in the culinary world and chefs as the holy trinity of flavor. Mm. So do you know what the holy? So trinity being three, do you know what the holy trinity? I'm gonna guess sugar, fat, and salt. There you go. Right, okay. right. So imagine those. Any, any combination of two of those is fantastic, right? So fat and sugar, right? Well, you've got butter and sugar in a, in a cake. Croissant. In a, in a, in a <laughs> croissant or a chocolate cake. Yep. It's so satiating in your, in your, in your mouth, right? Um, and, and any combination of two of those, so bacon, 
I would argue, depending on the recipe, bacon hits the Holy Trinity because there is some sugar involved in the curing process. But, you know, now you add smoke. So mm. this bacon, right? Sugar, salt, fat, and smoke. Mm. How could you go wrong, right? I almost, like, my mom doesn't eat pork. She doesn't eat bacon. But, like, she might still agree the smell of bacon is so you know, good to a point unless you burn it in your house and then it right. sucks. But like, I think everybody, bacon is definitely universal. How it's many like, people have you heard make a joke? I'd be a vegetarian if it weren't for bacon. <laughs> oh yeah, right, for right, sure. Right. So, so, so those, those things right there, sugar, salt, and, and fat really, really hit the mark. And they start, especially when they're all three, right? Um, you start to hit and your palate brain connection, what's called the bliss point, right? When something tastes as good as it possibly can and it doesn't taste any better. Your brain, you might not be saying, you know, we might sit here and have a piece of chocolate cake together. You and I might say, oh my God, this cake is delicious. I, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't outwardly say, this couldn't taste any better than it does right now, but your brain is thinking it. And that's what the bliss point is, the bliss point of flavor. And so as chefs, we're trying to hit the bliss point quite often, right, when we can. You're not going to hit it with every ingredient in every dish, but you're trying to create a bliss point. And it's different for everyone, mm. right? It's different for everyone. So some people, creamy, toasty breadcrumb on top mac and cheese can hit the bliss point for somebody. For others... I get pretty close with a with a with a fire charred ribeye, right? Beef ribeye mm -hmm. for me. That's that's one of my, you know, it just it hits everything almost that I need in my in my in my palate, olfactory brain combo. Mm -hmm. Right? So so back to that. Salt, sugar, fat are really any of those individually really contribute to that bliss point. And then when you work any two or three of them together, you you're not gonna fight it. It's like you won't, you won't win. <laughs> and we know that as chefs. You well, won't win. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, is the goal to keep people eating it? Or is the goal, I mean, to hit that bliss point, you want to hit Pleasure. that. But is the Pleasure point. The bliss point is where you don't have just one bite. You want to have multiple bites. Sure. Okay. Well, well, it's twofold. You, yeah. you, you're, as a chef, you're, you want them to return for business, to keep your doors open. But we like to please people. We like we like to satisfy that palate. That's what mm -hmm. makes us feel good, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's, it's satisfying to us that you walk away with that memory and that you're walking out the door or driving home going, God, I can't believe how good that was. Mm -hmm. That's what makes us feel good. We've, right. we've, we've achieved what we wanted. And then you wake up the next morning and all your fingers and toes are swollen from all that salt sure. and yeah. fat. And you're like, yeah. oh, yeah. what did I do? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I would, I'm going to, this is sort of posing a question to you as a nutritionist, is that I would say, and we can get into this a little bit, the, the health aspect of salt and fat and sugar, it seems to me salt might be the least damaging or intrusive. Well, I think in uh, well in today's world, salt, of the three, yeah, in today's world, I think salt can be detrimental based on the type of salt people mm -hmm. are eating and the type of food they're eating, mm -hmm. right? 
Like if they go to your restaurant and you're using sea salt and like Himalayan salts or charcoal salts or whatever, um, lava rock or whatever. But if you go to like McDonald's, they're adding like iodized processed salt that is going to make people swell and et cetera. And it's in really high doses. And just based on the health conditions that we see today that are so prevalent, like cardiovascular disease and high blood pressure, you know, hypertension, um, diabetes, when you talk about sugar, but salt, yes, I mean, you, you can't live without salt. And salt is, uh, some people readily lose a lot of salt. So if you sweat, some people sweat, you know, you get the salt line on your hat. Sure. Oh, yeah. Some people don't get that uh, because they genetically don't sweat salt out, but some people do. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So salt is really vital. You need it. It's part of your complete metabolic panel when we run it is your sodium level and your chloride level in your blood. And it's very, very tightly regulated, right? Mm-hmm. So sure. if you don't have enough salt, you're going to get dehydrated and your cell, which sodium is the main extracellular cation, it's not going to be able to pull water into the cell. So it's really important. Now you get too much salt and you throw off the balance of sodium and potassium and then you get lots of extracellular swelling. Okay. Right? So people get puffy. Sure. So this is like the morning after the delicious salty meal. You hear about water retention, right? I'm all puffy. Puffy and water right. retained. Yeah. Um, and in today's world, I think just based on our palates, we have, and, and maybe you, you can back me up on this, but I think people, we kind of destroyed our taste palates with the extremes of sweet and the extremes of salty. Most people don't have a great um, bitter, like most people hate bitters, right? They don't Correct. like bitter foods. Correct. And they don't know they don't like to eat them, which I would say is vegetables. Vegetables tend to fall in the bitter family, and most people, are, even kids and stuff, they're going to try to avoid vegetables because of the bitter aspect of it. But we know bitters is really important for digestion and and um, helping you not crave the sugar so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but that salty and sweet, we we've really overdeveloped those, I think, in our culture because. You even did a blog on it where you talked about like a Coke at McDonald's back in the fifties or whatever was like, it was like seven ounces or something. And now it's over 30 ounces. So if you're drinking a Coke at seven ounces versus 30 ounces, the amount of sugar that you're getting in that dose is just ginormous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you also take in the fact we're talking cane sugar. So cane sugar that's highly processed versus like honey or maple syrup or, you know, some of these alternative sugars, we call them alternative, but I would say they're more natural sugars mm-hmm. than a cane sugar. Cause cane sugar is, you know, very laborious to make yeah. and expensive and well, it's not anymore, but it used to be. Right. And it, it's removed all the fiber and everything else that would go along with it. Like a piece of fruit has fructose in it, that's sugar, but there's fiber and there's antioxidants and there's all that. So again, the type of sugar and cheap white sugar is what McDonald's is buying and probably the kitchens are buying in in hotels because it's cheap. It's cheap and in volume, what we need it for. Right. Right. You need like, you need tons of sugar. Whereas, right. You know, you can't be using honey or maple syrup for everything. Plus, as we go back to baking and the whole rationale of liquid versus, um, you know, sugar is a solid. Right. 
uh, and liquid sweeteners, you've got to change your ratios in what you're making based Correct. on liquids. But I would say those two I see, and then those are probably, you know, salt, excess salt, and excess sugar. Sure. What are the two top killers in our culture? Sure. Cardiovascular disease, usually related to hypertension, and diabetes. Yeah. Which is yeah. sugar. Yeah. So yes, those two would probably be the worst, but salt is essential, and I would say most people are going for the sugar. The fat, the fat's gotten a bad rap, personally. You know, we've talked about this maybe in visits to seed oils, yeah. you know. I, not all fats are no, created equal. No, they're not equal. all created equal. I think butter's a great fat. But butter is also, can be highly contaminated. So you want to buy the right butter, usually from, I think they're Gersey cows or type A cows, like the grass-fed butter. Sure. Um, I know in Europe, they've done a lot of studies on contaminants in the food supply, and what they test is butter. For some, because of the fatty nature of butter, it tends to hold chemicals mm -hmm. because fat molecules do that, right? Plastics and yeah. pesticides and herbicides in the environment, phthalates, all that. So they could test, they were testing butter all over Europe and they could tell the amount of contaminants in the area based on the butter. And so, and that comes from cows. So the cows eating the grass right. and all right. that stuff. So there's definitely differences in fat and, and like olive oil. And we could touch on that a little bit, but different types of fats. Fats are important. Your brain is mostly fat. You need fat. Um, and not to get heavily into it, but we know that the food industry, in the mid, mid part of the last century, they wanted to transfer the weight from sugar over to fat. And right. so the sugar industry heavily paid into getting fat vilified right so people would eat more high fructose corn syrup and low fat what margarine and sure you know, they're adding yeah they're adding sugars they're adding these kinds of things to it so yeah they paid yeah. lobbyists i believe uh 1967 oh. to be exact yeah the study conducted by the sugar industry in 1967 in which they paid scientists at harvard to conclude that fat and cholesterol were largely to blame for heart disease and it all but exonerated sugar. Right. So again, sugar lobbyists. Research. Right. You got to read your who is paying for right. the research. Follow the money. Follow right. the money. Right. As right. always. Right. Yeah. And so that I would say did a huge detriment to our environment because to our population's health in general. Because if you look at people pre 1950s, 1960s, even 1970s, you know, when you and I were kids. It was really rare to see an obese person. Absolutely. I mean, I don't remember a lot of obese people when I was maybe older people when I was little, but I remember that. And now it's like, it's so common. You just get used to it. Yeah. And it's, it's in a lot of cases, by no fault of people, they grow up eating poor food and these hydrogenated oils and seed oils and lots of sugar and, you know, right. they're in healthy foods, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's pervas pervasive now. And so I think that again, those that, tr what is it called? The Trinity, the Holy Trinity of the, flavor, the Holy Trinity, salt, of sugar, flavor, fat. I think alone, they definitely have pros and cons probably together. There's a lot of pros and cons, right? But they're stimulating the dopamine in the brain. Right. 
Right. And maybe right. you can talk a little bit about sugar because sugar is a drug. Sure. Sugar yeah. is absolutely, I'm glad, great segue. Sugar is absolutely a drug. Um, mm -hmm. and, and to me, not having the science background that you do, but in some of my research in my articles that I write, uh, I, didn't, I guess I didn't mention earlier that I, I write for a paper. Um, sugar is in a world all its own to me in a bad way because of the addictive salt and fat don't, don't contain the addictive chemicals. Am I right? Well, I think that when you say the bliss point, I think with fat and salt, there's a limit of what you can take in. Sure. Like when you eat fat, like your body, the feedback loop is like, sure. stop. You can't eat any more fat. Same right. thing with salt. Like you can't overeat salt. You, you try right. drinking salt water out of an ocean, you're going to die. Like, right. But with sugar, you can override that signal. Right. Because the, the, neuro, the neurons will keep craving more and more and more and right. more and you'll keep eating it. I mean, I've seen some kids eat too much sugar and vomiting. You'll sure. get sick. Sure. You'll do it, but you 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 can go way past that than I think you can with fat. You, like you're not going to sit down and eat like a stick of butter. Like your body's going right. to be like, oh, I'm full. Can't eat anymore. Same with salt. Like you can only tolerate so much salt, right? But sugar, you see people put down a 30-ounce Coke. The, <laughs> the addiction that it creates in the brain, the chemical addiction, the scientific and chemical addiction bypasses that, that feedback loop. That feedback loop to tell your stomach you're full. Right. More so, or yeah, bypasses it more so than other foods. Yeah. Something interesting. So there was a book, I'm sorry, there was a movie, uh, Fed Up, some years back that I watched. And it's a great movie. And there was a father, uh, I believe a family down in Texas, and it was a father of three or four kids. And his youngest son, um, I think, was about 12 or 13 or 14. And they were talking. And if you were to just turn, tune this in, you wouldn't know what they were talking about. He said, this one, I, I just remember this one father's comment stuck in my mind. Um, and his father said that he was, he was working so hard to keep sugar from his son. Um, his son was relentless and is pleading for it. You know, he would try to hide it. His son would find it. He would lock it up. He would break the locks. He was just, and he, and he told his father at one point, you keep hiding it from me and I'm just going to find it somewhere else. Now, doesn't that sound like a drug? Doesn't that sound like a kid finding alcohol mm -hmm. or weed or whatever? He was talking about sugar. Mm -hmm. And this youngest son of his, who was about 13 or 14, was physically different from his other children. He was fatter. He was lazy. Um, he was talking about sugar. Wow. And you've seen this, I'm sure. But for those who haven't, if you look, if you look at a brain on cocaine, specifically cocaine, other drugs too, but specifically cocaine and a brain with a fair amount of sugar in it, like, you know, a big, like a solid candy bar or a 30 ounce like Coke. Like a birthday cake at a birthday party. Or like a birthday party. cake at a yeah. party and you have two, three pieces. The, the, the CT scan of a brain quite literally looks identical, identical, the yeah. exact it percentages and ratios in the brain are exact. It stimulate, both stimulate dopamine receptors yeah. pretty heavily. And, and you know, dopamine is, is the drug we all want because it gives us focus. It makes us hypersensitive and, and uh, gives us adrenaline because we break down our dopamine into adrenaline, sure. right? Sure. 
And so everybody's seeking dopamine. And sugar stimulates those receptors, and so you get the dopamine rush. Yeah. The problem is, is that it's short-lived, and you got to have more. So much like alcohol, um, well, alcohol is more of a depressant, right? But cocaine, by far, all the stimulants and the amphetamines, like they're going to stimulate that dopamine release. Just like if you jump out of an airplane, <laughs> sure, you, know, you sure. get a big surge of dopamine, and your receptors get filled. Um, but today. It's it's definitely like I, I go back to that the taste buds of the sweet taste buds they're actually the first taste buds that we develop as a child, and so sweet is the first thing we taste, um, and you'll notice if you give a little baby who's just starting to eat solid foods you give them like a vegetable like a broccoli or something bitter they might be like whoa they'll make that face back to your bitter. Because their sweet taste buds are mainly, they're the first ones, they haven't developed their bitter. Um, but it's also important as that baby to be giving them different array of foods so that they can build their palate. Because if you just give them sweet foods, which is what we tend to do, right? Rice, cereal, and fruit, and sugary things, and juices, and all this stuff. I mean, milk. Milk is sweet. It's got lactose in it which is a sugar um, you just get used to that and if you're not feeding children a diverse a diversity of foods they won't build those palates so they're everybody's sure. addicted to sugar sure sure and, um, yeah well you know touching on the on the drug aspect of it and specifically cocaine they're even made almost identically Cocaine, cocaine, and from getting from the plant or the coca leaves, right, yeah. and the sugar cane or you know, you know, beet or whatever, all the way down to um, extracting these resins and then soaking them and then churning them and spinning them and centrifuge and all of these things and getting it down and they even both, you know, working sulfuric acid into the into the into the process to get a white powder. They even end the same, right? And it's so similar, right? And and the advent of Coca-Cola. People don't even always put it together that in the name Coca-Cola, Coca is derived from the Coca plant. That original Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. So it's not just the Coke brothers? No, it's not just the Coke brothers. <laughs> they make something else, steel or something, I don't know. Um, no, but, but Coca-Cola had cocaine. That's right. where the Coca name comes from because well, everybody refers to brown sodas as cola but not coca because the coca was specific to that that brand, that brand. Well, you know and you talk about moderation well uh rough statistics are that you go into any grocery store like your albertsons or town and country or whatever it is around here and approximately 82 percent of every food product inside those four walls contains some form of sugar and I'm not telling you this, you know, but there's about 45 or 50 different varieties of sugar. They, they come by many names. Yep. And so speaking of another podcast talking about labels and what's in a label. Yeah, we'll do one of um, that. Um, 45 or 50 some different sh sugars all with different names to be hidden there. Well, so, that's the thing. When we talk about labels... In the United States, the labels is a very sketchy thing. Yes. When it comes to about telling well. people what is in their food. Yep. So here is my recommendation is like when it comes to like how much sugar should I eat? If you're shopping on the outside of the grocery store, 
Like you're in the produce section, you're in the dairy section, you're in the bakery. Like you kind of stay out of the middle of the grocery right. store. I call it the bowels of the <laughs> the bowels of the building. Everything you need yeah. is on the. Per- I, I've I've written about grocery stores. Everything you need is on the perimeter. Well, here's the thing. I took a picture one day. I was in a grocery store in Washington. Oh, this is years ago. I think I posted on Instagram. I took a picture of the soda aisle. Just standing back. It's like bright colors and everything. If you just look down the soda aisle, or you could look down a cereal aisle. It's just like all the colors, the attractants, the kids, everything is like they they get you early. Yes. They pull you in, you know, like Mountain Dew. Kids. Mountain Dew like has this like vibrant look. Right. And I am shocked at how many people drink Mountain Dew. To, I, to Mountain this day, Dew, it is amazing how many people, I would agree, how many people I, drink Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew, if you are listening to this right now and you are drinking a Mountain Dew, you need to take that stuff and dump it down the sink because it is the most toxic, addictive soda out there. I mean, they might as well put cocaine in it. Right. It is so much sugar, so much caffeine, and then it's green. Yeah. Is it green? Right. It looks Still? like antifreeze. The carbonated, carbonated antifreeze. Horrible. So, a little story about Mountain Dew. So yeah. back to my first job. I'm 15 uh, in this place called The Malt Shop. It was a very busy ice cream, like burger parlor in high school, and I'm a dishwasher there. And um, the manager is kind of showing me around my first day. I'm 15 years old, and he's showing me around, kind of this is where you do this and that. And, um, you know, you can order a meal half price, and this is where you put your dirty clothes. And there's a soda fountain here. You know the machines. You've got your, your you know, your root beer, Barks, because growing up in Minnesota, it's Barks root beer. And you've got your Mountain Dew and your Coke and your lemonades and all of those in there. And he's talking to me about some of the logistics of the job. And after, after the soda fountain, it was just blah, 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 blah. I get to have all the soda I want, blah, blah, blah. That's all yeah. I heard. I was 15. That's all <laughs> I heard. So the first three, four days, taking those big stainless steel malt tins. We've all seen them in a malt mm-hmm. shop. You get your malt into your glass, tulip glass, and then yep. what's left over in the malt glass. And I just fill those with a little bit of ice, and I was filling with Mountain Dew, three, four of those a day for about three, four days, the first days I was there. This older, this older cook in the kitchen, his name was Ron. I, gr- I grew quickly to really look up to this guy. He had a very dry, intimidating kind of personality and sense of humor to him. He walked up next to me as I was filling this, and he's getting water from the water fountain. You know, sweaty, headband, dirty T-shirt, and he doesn't say anything. He takes the tin right out of my hand. He dumps it in the sink. He fills it with some water, and he hands it back to me. He says... Quit drinking that bleep. Right. It's terrible for you. Just don't do it. But I'm thirsty, I said. He says, that's why you're thirsty right there. Even he knew that. This is 1985. He says, drink water, nothing but water at work. And mostly because he was just in a friendly way, kind of. I listened to what this guy said, and so I did it. And I somehow I just passed those three, four days. I never never was a soda drinker. And, And to this day... I have a soda a year. Sometimes, sometimes it just, boy, a cold Pepsi just sounds really good. Like once a year, every couple of years. I'm just really not a soda drinker, and I well, never you know, really I, have been. I think that soda starts in childhood. Um, if you don't give your children soda, I don't think they become adults who drink soda. 
Now, I am totally guilty. When we go out, my kids like root beer. And I let them get root beer. Um, you know, sometimes. But, or if I buy soda, I buy like the real ginger ale or the real root beer. And we have it. Usually I buy kombucha that says it's root beer. So my kids are drinking kombucha. <laughs> but They don't know. They think it's root beer. Um, but... So I'm not, I'm not saying like we don't let our kids drink soda once in a while, but I do not buy soda. I've never bought soda and I've never been a soda drinker. And I think that's because my parents were diehard against soda. We never had soda in the house. So I never grew up drinking sodas. And I think you develop back to that palate, you develop a taste for the soda and then you get the caffeine hit because most sodas, some root beers don't have, have it and like Sprite doesn't have it, but most sodas have caffeine in them and that's what people are addicted to too. So instead of the coffee in the morning, you know, they're drinking a soda, but I never like was allowed to drink that as a kid and I would sneak it. Of course I'd go down the street. Here's the thing when your kids, I mean, I know what my kids are doing. My, my, my dad was like so nutrition oriented and no soda in the house. My parents didn't even eat red meat. I mean, we were like grape nuts. Now I look at grape nuts. Grape nuts probably isn't really healthy for you. But back then that was like, my dad thought it was healthy. That was the only cereal we got to eat was grape nuts. Like how gross is grape nuts? We're the same age. One of the <laughs> only food cereals my mother would buy in the 70s. She read a book called Sugar Blues and about all she would buy was grape nuts. Ugh. Well, you have to eat it right away. For us. I, see, so I like that crunchy. Yeah. Maybe because I grew up with that. I love that crunchy crunch to the grape nut. Sure. But if you let it sit too long, it soaks up all the and then it's like a you could throw like balls of it at people. It's, it's prison gruel after it's about seventeen gruel. Exactly. seconds. That's oh you gotta have it's like seven like seven little tiny bowls of it. Need yeah. a little bit and then keep adding it. But I would go down to my friend's house, two houses down, and their parents literally worked all the time, were never home. We'd eat Fruit Loops and watch soap operas all day. And at my house, my dad was like, no soda, no sugar. And we were only allowed to watch PBS one hour a day. And then we watch MASH once a week as a family. And that was it. So, like, I could go and cheat and I could go eat garbage if I wanted to. But, like, soda was never anything that was my parents instigated. And so I think that's a huge reason why we don't, sure. as Ryan's the same way why we don't have soda in our house. So when I say like, just don't give your kids soda, maybe once in a while as a treat, but don't have it in the house right. because they will likely right. turn into adults who don't drink soda. Right. Right. Um, and I didn't have it around much either. Right. My mother read that book. She bought a yogurt culture. We're talking about 1975, <laughs> right? Like as kids, I was seven years old. So a yogurt culture, she made her own jam. She baked her own bread. And my mom wasn't a great cook. She'd kill me if she heard this. She's not a bad cook, but she wasn't a great cook. So food was just food, right? Right. Um, but we had all these things. So we were the weird house. Like, mm. what kind of jelly is this? <laughs> it's not Smucker's or, right. you know. I remember going on vacation in 78 as kids. And we went to see a uh, family took a vacation, Disneyland, Knott's Berry Farm. And we came back with a packet my mom had brought a packet of like five or six jars of Knott's Berry Farm jelly. And it was oh. like, this is what jelly should taste like. <laughs> Not mom's jelly. Well, what about the but real she made peanut everything. butter? Yeah. Like oh, we had back real... when we were kids, it right. was like Jif. 
Yeah. GIF was the thing. And my dad was like, that's garbage. It's yep. got like all those hydrogenated oils right. in it, sugar in it. And we had to eat like Adam's like real peanut butter. Right. But now like I will never buy GIF. I would never buy a GIF. It's, it's just, like ingrained in me as a child. Sure. We eat like real peanut butter if we're going to yeah. eat it. So. Don't go to Scott's house when we were kids. You have to stir the peanut butter. <laughs> There's all this oil on top. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's things that as parents you can do for your children as far as like this, the sugar cravings and things is like certain things just, just keep them out of your home. If you go out and eat once in a while, fine. Another yeah. thing we yeah. never do ever. Well, I won't say ever. We, we've never taken our, I've taken my kids to McDonald's one time and that was because we were in Oregon and we were at an event and we were camping out and it was like 110 degrees and no place in town had ice. The whole town was out of ice and we were trying to get icy drinks. And so we went through the McDonald's drive-thru and they were literally running out of ice. So we got icy drinks and some hamburgers and the hamburgers tasted like plastic. My kids wouldn't even eat them, but we never go to McDonald's. Once in a great while, I might take my kids to Taco Bell, but... Yeah. Don't go to fast food. Don't feed them fast yeah. food because they start to get their palates set for fast food. Right. And they will grow up and they will be they will not go to fast food. Do you want to know that if you get a meal at McDonald's, cheeseburger, fries, soda, take take that meal in the bag. Now when I'm talking the meal, I'm talking from the plastic straw to the cardboard to the food itself, the contents in that bag are over 75% of some derivative of corn. Wow. Over 75% of some derivative. It might be in the cardboard. It could be in your, in your, in your beef, corn syrup in your soda. There's, there's over three quarters of that meal is some derivative of corn, undigestible processed corn. And you know, when we come to food allergies and we talk a lot about the foods that people think they can't eat, most people do not attribute that they might have a corn allergy because they don't actually realize how much corn they're eating in their day. So they say, well, I don't eat gluten. I don't eat dairy. Um, and I say, I don't eat soy, which is probably a lie too, because soy is everywhere, right? I say, well, are you eating corn? Well, yeah. I mean, what am I going to eat if I can't eat gluten? And I start counting off all the different places that they could have corn and they don't even realize it. The corn syrup, the corn solids, the thickeners, the corn starch. Um, when we get into labels, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So corn is another thing that, again, food-wise in our country, we use so much of it. And then we're using it, like we're using corn in our food and we're using corn in our like disposable, right, right. you know, green um, things. So sure. yeah, I think that's something to think about too, is the corn. As Michael Pollan writes in his book, it is in the, in the truest definition of the word, humans and corn have a symbiotic relationship. We've worked, we've worked as when he wrote this 10 or so years ago, neither one could survive on the planet without the other one. We are so reliant on corn globally. And corn needs us to cultivate and harvest and do it. it it's, it's a grass, right. but it doesn't, it doesn't, it won't survive long-term on a healthy level on its own without us. So it's a truly symbiotic relationship. Yeah. Well, that's um, a great way to put it. 
to kind of circle back to the sugar thing, I found something kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, we're, 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 we're all the pitfalls of sugar, right? We're talking about all the negatives of sugar, but the bittersweet truth of sugar is that Americans and America, the United States, has sugar to thank for its independence. And I'll explain history. So there's an old saying out there. You used to hear it, I guess, years ago, more on the, like a long time ago on the East Coast more. Cod built America. Meaning it was the, it was the fishing of cod in the North Atlantic because they were so plentiful and such an easy to eat fish and it's flaky and it's tasty and it's, it was abundant that the, that the, the wealth brought from cod fishing in America helped gain some financial independence from, from England, right? And it allowed us to, you know, build communities, build towns, uh, fortify what was a very fledgling, you know, uh, wasn't even a military yet, but to sort of arm ourselves, right, was, was money from cod fishing. And so the way I've phrased it is that if, if cod built America, then sugar was the architect. So we're trying to break free from England. Revolutionary War. Simultaneously, um, sugar is being cultivated more and more and more in the Caribbean and the Bahamas and the southern part of the United States. Uh, sugar cane is one of the few crops that seem to grow. Columbus brought it here and it grew just as well, if not better, than where, where it came from in you know, Asia and, and Europe and such. So as we are manning cotton plantations in the southern part of the United States with slaves, the British are manning sugarcane fields and farms with slaves. The ratio to slave versus non-slave in the cotton fields of the United States was such that they felt safe maintaining that slave population. In the Caribbean islands where they were being colonized by the British and their wealthy and their sugarcane fields, the ratio of slave to slave owner was such that the British really feared that they could be overtaken very easily on any given plantation or an entire island by the slaves because there was a lot of slaves to, to English ratio. So in turn, the wealthy were paying the British government to pay for soldiers to help be guards on the Caribbean islands and where the sugarcane was grown, thus depleting troops on the mainland fighting for our independence. And so mathematically, there should have been more than plenty British soldiers to win that war and win that fight ultimately in the United States. But a lot of their, or I should say, a, a, enough of their soldiers were busy being guards on sugar plantations, which allowed us to have the upper hand. Wow, I had so, never thought about it like that. Little bittersweet Goes to reality. show you how people want their sugar, right? And it, and it, and it, and it had so much value at that point that... Um, it really had value and it was used and it was used as a commodity against the trade and sell, sale of sleeves, slaves. 
and, a, and, and at its peak, a slave was worth two tablespoons of sugar. That's, that's, that's both how little their life was valued and how valuable sugar was at one point. So a slave's li life was worth two tablespoons of sugar. Wow. Well, I have done some talks at, at our events where I talk about acellular carbohydrates and sugar and stuff. And I do talk about, you know, kind of the, the slave trade itself, how it has its roots in sugar production. Because creating sugar, at least white sugar, was very laborious and you needed a lot of manpower to do it. So that, the, what is it, the, the triangle there from uh, England or the Europe to uh, Africa right, to the, the Caribbean. Spice triangle or something, something like right? That, that triangle, were, trade triangle, right. Where they were uh, trading slaves for sugar, yep. basically. Yep. Um, but I hadn't heard that story before about the soldiers and. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. Cool. They're cool busy guarding plantations, the wealthy British and their sugar plantations, and mm. we're not fighting on the right. East Coast. Right. Wow. Wow, that's very interesting. So we have that's sugar. To thank for pro our probable independence, oddly enough. Yeah, and sugar to thank for slavery. So all around, right. sugar has got problems. Isn't, isn't that? Isn't that? It's good and right. bad. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh. Well, I love history. I'm a super history buff, and any information like that just is so intriguing to me. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, here's the deal, too. Let's give some realistic things, what people can do to avoid sugar. I think we've given them a few. I've given a few here. Sure. Like, don't go to fast food. Don't have soda in your home. Um, you know, if you're going to bake a lot, a lot of people in our community are baking and their homestead are like, and there's going to be sugar there right. or whatnot. But, you know, modest in how much you're doing. Um, but some of these big ones with chemicals and all this stuff, right. like, Right. Just don't have them in your home. Right. Do you have any other recommendations? Avoid frozen foods. Stay out of that section in the grocery store hmm. and processed foods. Right. It's you know the the name the name that gets thrown out is sort of the the poster child for terrible food is hot pockets. Right. But you know look at a look at a label. I mean everything again everything has sugar in it. So stay away from the processed frozen meals, right? They're convenient, but that's all they are. It's a, it's a, it's a pyrrhic victory, right? You've, you've won, you've won the day you've, you've, you've prepared a meal for yourself fast, but it's done nothing for you other than, other than just immediately satiate your appetite in the moment. It, it was, it was food that filled you. That's it. The benefits end there, right? And reading labels. And I know we'll get into labels at some point, but Sugar is disguised in many, and fats and salts are, are disguised in many names, but if you can avoid high fructose corn syrup, that's a good start. Now, it's hard. I've even found it on organic dried blueberries in a bag, and I was like, what the, I actually called, I was that guy. I called <laughs> the 800 number and I asked, what's up with this? And it's, and it was, it was a, it was a thin coating, naked, you know, invisible to the naked eye, but a thin coating for a preservative, right? Because right? sugar is a preservative. Right. Sugar and salt are preservatives, especially together, right? Curing, like Scandinavian cuisine. But avoiding high fructose corn syrup, I think, is a big one. That's a, that's an easy start. Try to avoid. Try to find labels where sugar is not in the first 
four or five ingredients if you can. Yeah. Easier said than done. I'm not and saying remember, I do it all the time. Organic but cane sugar is still cane it's sugar. It's still <laughs> sugar. Still it's sugar. still sugar. Yeah, that's I, I see that so much. It's like organic, and you read the ingredients. It's like organic cane sugar. It's like it's still organic. It's still cane sugar. Right. Yeah. Right. Big deal. Yeah. And the other thing I think too is be more in, in our community probably just with being a lot of people that are somewhat sustainable is like explore diff your different taste buds. So become friendly with your bitter taste bud and your sour taste bud and a yes. little, and, and don't just feed salty and sweet all the time. Um, start giving your kids, especially if they're little, it, it like I have a teenager hard and I have a seven year old hard. It's like, those are hard ages, right? Right. But if you have a little baby and they're starting to eat, like give them a vast array of foods. And I find this, I, I think about that study, it, it was actually not an official study, but there was a woman and I don't have the exact um, information of who she was, but she ran an orphanage. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but she, in 1930s or something, the sad thing is that she did this study for years on new babies that she would get into the orphanage. And she had a tray that had multiple different foods on it from like sardines and anchovies, fish eggs to oranges to all the different tastes. She would put it on their tray and what she would notice is some days the babies, all they wanted to eat was sardines and that's what they would eat. And some days all they would eat was sugar. But if you gave them a vast array and a choice, they thought this was normal and they would choose based on their either nutritional need for that time, um, what they, like the omegas, they, their body inherently knew they needed omegas, so they would eat the fish eggs. And she did this, like, years-long study on all these babies about food choices. And unfortunately, I think her orphanage burned down, and she lost, like, all this research. But it goes to show you that the younger you feed your children a multitude of different foods that the healthier their taste palate will be. So if you only feed them sugar, sugary processed food, these other taste buds get neglected, but they have a need for these other individual right. nutrients. So they right. need omegas, their body needs omegas, their body needs bitter, their body needs sour. If you don't give them those foods, they start to become deficient, right? We get the deficiencies in this. And then we start to see things like hyperactivity, um, behavioral problems, sleep issues, anemia. Anemia is very common in children. Um, you know, zinc deficiency, magnesium deficiency, all the things we think of as an adult, children can have as well. So the earlier you can start them giving this kind of robust palate of foods mm -hmm. and sometimes letting them choose. Sure. And you might notice, like, we're, we're big into this thing in our culture, too. Like, eat all the food on your plate. Eat everything on your plate. Like, how many times have you heard that in your life? Oh, They're my gosh. They're starving children in Africa. Like, eat everything you're on your plate. You're not leaving this table till your plate is clean. I heard right. that all the time from my grandmother, grandparents on both sides, and my parents. And this is, but this is coming from, like, you and I are the generation of grandparents who grew up in the Depression. Yep. So this is coming from people that actually were starving. World War II, people from Europe, they were actually starving. So, yeah, I get it. But now in this day and age, telling somebody to eat everything on their plate, at least in Western culture, is like you should just tell people to eat until they feel full. I actually tell people, don't eat until you feel full. Eat right before you feel, feel, feel full. 
you know. Um, but telling children to do that and then giving them a plate full of carbohydrates, like eat it till it's gone, um, right. that starts developing eating disorder because... I'm very, very guilty of this one, even though I know it. I am very guilty of this. Eat, eat till you're no longer hungry, not till you're full. I will, I will eat till I'm full often, more often than I know I should. Oh, I think but most people do. it just tastes so darn good if I'm yeah. into something. And sometimes I can put it away and put it down. It might be a meal I made. I'm like, good. I'm good. Right? You know, I, there's just something that sometimes clicks in my brain, right? And we've talked this about this a little bit. And it's the same with like, one day I'll make a cocktail. And I won't even get through it. It's like, eh, I'm not... I'm not feeling it. It's like, it doesn't taste good. Right. This doesn't feel good in my mouth. It doesn't taste good. I don't want it. And then another day, you know, the old Kenny Chesney song, you know, <laughs> one is too many and one more is never enough, right? I just, it's like, oh, these, this goes down and I'm another one, right? And then some yeah. days it's just, no, but I don't like it. And food is the same way with me sometimes. Mm -hmm. I just can't get enough of a certain thing. Well, I think too, I see boredom. I feel like people eat a lot because they're bored that I don't even know how people can be bored in this day and age. I would love a day right. where I was bored. But like, I feel, I see it in my kids sometimes, especially it's like it's summer vacation right now. And so unless I keep them busy with things and they're doing projects or chores or, but if they're just sitting around, there's something about the TV too that it's like, if they're just sitting around not doing anything, they just like want to eat. And adults do that as well. Like if I'm sitting here doing nothing, I need to be eating. And that's another strategy I would say don't just eat when you're, don't eat because you're bored. Don't eat because you have to be eating something while you're watching a movie or whatever. You know, watch kind of the habit that you have around just being still, not doing a lot. Do you need to be filling that up with either eating food or drinking alcohol or whatever? And if that's the case, that's, that's something to look at and to analyze, you know, because at that point you're not eating until you're hungry you're just eating to eat. You're eating to like do something. To occupy your brain. Yeah. And that's not a good reason yeah. for, a few, for a few reasons. I mean, but we, but the society is set up to have you do that. The food industry wants you to do that. They, they want you to have foods that are easy to eat. You don't have to prepare them and you can just keep eating them until you, they're gone. Eat, keep eating the bag of chips. Right. Until right. the chips are gone. Not until like you're full, but right. until the chips are gone. Right. So, right. um, that might be another strategy is just not eating just to eat. Right. And here's one I remembered from when you asked some advice from a few minutes ago. Um, oftentimes, when people are hungry or think they are hungry, they are indeed thirsty. Exactly. Go get a big hit, 8, 10, 12 ounces of water. And drink it, you know, rapidly enough that you kind of, you feel full. Like do that instead of eating. I will bet you will start to change a habit to six or seven out of 10 times. You will end up feeling not as hungry as you thought you were yeah. after five, 10 minutes. Drink some water and no harm, right? What harm will ever come from drinking a glass of water? When is there a bad time to drink a glass of water? Yeah, right? I mean, so you could die from drinking too much water, but uh, those are that's ridiculous. You're not. That's not going to happen. Right. And most people in medicine, I can see it in their blood work. Most people are dehydrated. 
they are, they're getting the hunger signal when actually they're thirsty. And what happens is if you deprive yourself when you're thirsty, your brain will actually override the signal, meaning you will no longer be thirsty. And this is how a lot of older elderly people die from dehydration, is that their brain has actually gone past the place where they were thirsty, and now they are not thirsty, and they don't have the signal to drink. And um, it, it, it happens in in young people as well. So if you are getting hungry, you're right. Like having some water first to see if that's what you need is the best. And most people aren't drinking enough. So like how much do you weigh? I think I know what you're going to say. I'm about, yeah, no, I'm about, I'm about 195. So you need to drink half your body weight in ounces every single day. And that's just without exercise. Right. Right. You know, it takes two liters of water for your organs to function every day. Do most people drink two liters of water every day? Absolutely not. They drink coffee and soda and right. things that are dehydrating. So like you need two liters of water a day. And I had this conversation with Brady Miller, who you don't know, but he works for Go Hunt and he's a friend of my husband's. And he's hiking, he's doing all this like hardcore activity. And he told me he's never thirsty and he never drinks enough water. And I was like, well, you're dehydrated then because if you're not even getting thirsty anymore, your signal's been turned off. So I was teasing him like, and he's a big guy. He's like over 6'2 or 6'3. And I was like, you need to be drinking water. So the joke is every time he sees me, he's like, okay, doc, I'm drinking some water. But I tell people like over years, you you can do it. But over years, you're going to be chronically dehydrated. Sure. And um, But that's repairable, right? Yeah, it is repairable. And even I mean, it seems like a silly question, it's but even if it's you not get so bad, you end up in the hospital getting an IV bag of fluids, right? You can do that, but you don't want to get to that point right. where you need that. I guess um, I meant you can, you can, 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 can you turn that back on? Can that be turned back on? I think right? so. Right. So you start hydrating yeah. yourself and reform the habit or, or create the new habit of hydrating yourself. Yeah. Can you get back to where you yeah. should be that your brain's telling you you're thirsty. Well, the the key is if you're urinating, so there's a few things. If you're urinating and your urine is like just slightly yellow, that's good. You're hydrated. If your urine is bright yellow, you're not hydrated enough. Now, that's a caveat. If you take B vitamins, your urine is going to be bright yellow. So, you speaking of Mountain that. Dew, like well, I know what I, <laughs> I know. I know what I took, right? Oh, yeah. So like you you got to think of that, but if your if your urine is super clear and there's nothing in it, you may be overhydrating. And sometimes people say, "I'm drinking a lot of water, but all I do is pee all day," or they just puff up. And that's because you need electrolytes. So you're having an electrolyte imbalance at that point. You drink too, you know. Um, uh, hyponatremia is like you uh, you're drinking too much water. It's basically your salt content's going way down. You're gonna swell, and then. That can kill you for sure because you need it. So, But most people aren't doing that. Most people are, are dehydrated, especially living here in right. altitude, dry. Like I always ask people, is your skin dry? And they're like, well, let's wait. We live in Montana, the driest place on earth, right. maybe next to Arizona. So like you have to think about those things. Sure, but sure. Water is water is yeah. vital. I was thinking about this yesterday, watering my flowers in my garden. You know, it's been really hot here. And you can just see a flower or a plant, like you give them water and like in five minutes, they literally just like come alive. They just perk right up. 
So think of yourself like that. Like if you're feeling low, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling like starving, hungry, like headache, headachey, <clears throat> go for a glass of water and you might be shocked how you just kind of perk right back up. Yeah. So, yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's days I'm very conscious about the water I drink and there'll be a day, it'll be five in the afternoon and I'll have had water when I got up and I'll think, gosh, I'm thirsty. And I'll think back. It's like, I don't even know what I even drank today. Right. And then other days I'm great. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not complete habit for me yet. Well, as a chef too, like I said, those guys in the, in the kitchen, they're sweating. Like oh yeah. Losing fluid like crazy. Like they're hiking a mountain. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. You know, sweating and sweating. Yeah. So you need a lot of water. When I'm working on a line in those days, oh yeah, the amount of, I'm, I'm generally not a big hydrator generally as we talk about this day to day week to week but on a big day or night like on a line in a kitchen like that it it amaze you how much water i could drink in a 4 hour period right? it would be fun to do an experiment and just line everybody up every night after work and give them all ivs <laughs> right right to replenish all their stuff and their fluids and then they'll go out and drink a couple of bottles of wine and lose it again but like if you you know, if, if you were hydrating people, it's it's definitely on top of the list. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen cooks, right? They'll come into the day, again, talking about the lifestyle, cooks or chefs. They'll come in and they've got a, uh, you know, Red Bull or those monsters or thing. And I just look at it as like, oh, God, I just I look at that. And they'll walk in the door with that at 2 in the afternoon or whatever. But more often than not, once their station's set, going to start to get busy and they're setting up their their world there's a big old container of water yeah they're not drinking another red bull or another though they're they're hitting water the older smarter ones they've then they've, they've got water next to them mm -hmm. a well, big container of water <laughs> it's gone by the end of the night well longevity in anything is the smarter people that take care of themselves tend to last right yep that's the goal all right anything else that we could talk about today on I mean, sugar, anything. I think we've kind of hit a bunch we of have, topics. We have hit. We have hit. Yeah. Uh, um, sugar's such a big one, you know. Oil a little bit, but we touched on that a little bit. Um, olive oil, we didn't touch on a whole lot. Um, that could be another one, possibly another conversation. But I think, I think really the, the trinity of flavor and talking about sugar I think is really a big one. Yeah. Sugar's really a big one. So, yeah. and not enough people realize how impactful it is on our lives and our bodies and, and just what it does to our body. Mm -hmm. Some good, but mostly bad. Mm. People don't realize. There you go, folks, coming from the chef. All it's right, true. Scott. Well, we have a ton of things we can talk about, so I'm excited to do more podcasts. Um, I think our listeners are going to get a ton out of this. Um, do you have any social media? Do you have an email? Like, where can people find you? I know you've written for a blog at Bit for Big Sky. So I write for. So the yeah. so the first part of your question is, um, I am on no social media. You are so smart. I, <laughs> I, I have an active LinkedIn, and I have touch for about 10 minutes in two years, uh, but it is active. I'm on LinkedIn, Scott Matura, um, and I have an email, which is simply my name at gmail.com, so scottmatura at gmail.com, uh, and I do also write for uh, Explore Big Sky, which is under the outlaw umbrella, so they do the 
the biannual winter summer magazine outlaw partners um, they've got some social media presence of course and then they do the newspaper and I do a bi-monthly column so I do you know column every two weeks and I'm now the longest the longest column writer of their paper other than their staff of their their people that work there and write columns I've I've probably done 250 columns I don't know um, and and I do get comments from people and it's funny I was I was standing in line at the Kenny Chesney concert a couple weeks ago and a oh, woman in front that? of me I did go to that oh. I was one of the line standers wow and the woman in front of me turned around and did a double take. She says, are you Scott Matura? I said, I am, not knowing where she might know me. And she says, I recognize your profile pic from your column in the paper. So I thought oh. that was interesting. But yeah. I've been doing it for about seven and a half years. And there is a budget now. I make a very small. I still do it because I enjoy it. Well, what is the name but of the blog? Amuse Bouche. So A-M-U-S-E, Amuse Bouche. Uh, it's a French term for very small bites. Like so when you go to uh. back to your very fine dining restaurants, um, oftentimes you'll come in and before you've ordered anything, you'll sit down. You've been initially greeted uh, by your waiter. You'll be brought a single, sometimes as big as two bites, but a single bite, little something to just stimulate Get the body going and stimulate your brain and your appetite. And it's a little thing. It could be have protein, could be vegetable, could be anything, but it's a little bite. It's an amuse bouche, just a taste. Okay. And, and so, that's on the Big Sky. So you can just Google it. You I, can you can search my name on the Explore Big Sky website and yeah. it has all of my articles. Yeah, they're all so. really good. And they're easy reads. So I think it's the six hundred word range. Yeah. Right, right. And it's 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 funny, you 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 know you've either Got memory issues or been writing for a while or both. I started to write a column the other day and my editor says, you're going to have one, you know, to how you looking today because it's due the next day. I said, yep, I've got it. Gets to be about five o'clock in the afternoon and I'm looking over some of my columns as we were going to talk about today and I find a column from about four years ago that I wrote, which was the topic I was had a half an article done already. I had written about this already. <laughs> and then I read my column. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm writing almost the same stuff I was going to write. It's like, well, darn. So I had to start a whole new one over. Yeah, but you think about it. It was four <laughs> years ago. Nobody goes back four years that much. So it's just re, it's just re, like, yeah, reminding yeah, people. It is. But I know. That's a lot, though. Seven years of writing and having to come up with different topics. Like, I've done some fun stuff. I like, yeah. to, I like to do two things. I like to tie in my industry with the rest of the world and how it may or may not relate. And I like to write about things that people don't or wouldn't normally think about or didn't know. Talk about the history of sugar in the country, right? right? I like to write about those things. I like to talk about um, things you might not know, mm -hmm. right? And I do some fun things like fun topics um, that might just get people thinking about things in a fun, amusing way. But I like to, I like to you know, the history of the modern kitchen, right? And things yeah. like that. In the home kitchen, I'm talking about a home kitchen, you know? Um, so just things like that. How our restaurant, modern restaurant system was started in this country and how it's tied to the Eisenhower uh, push for coast-to-coast uh, -coast interstates. They're directly tied, right? So just fun things like that. Wow. So Yeah, I like all that stuff. You can find all my articles oh, that's on, cool. the, on, the, on the site. Thanks for okay. doing this. Thank you for having me. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.